So good to be with you. And, and before we do, before we gather together, you know, uh, one of the things that the scriptures command us to do is to shout to the Lord. Are you familiar with that in the Psalms? Hello, anybody here? Yes. Okay, thank you, thank you. I need a little, I need feedback. I need, I need feedback. So here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, I want you to just, uh, for one second, stand up, and I'm gonna say, hallelujah, and then I want you to shout to the top of your lungs, the Lord reigns, okay? Do you believe that, by the way? Yes. Do you believe that, by the way? All right, we're getting there. Okay, so I'm going to shout hallelujah, and then don't go, the Lord reigns, okay? Let's not be pathetic. Let's be vocal, all right? Here we go. Hallelujah. Glory. Let's try it again. Hallelujah. Glory. Okay, that's at 50%, all right? We're getting there. So let's try it one more time. Cut loose from your inhibitions. Let the valley know, let Thousand Oaks know that the Lord reigns. Here we go. Hallelujah. That was great. Thank you. Have a seat. Doesn't that feel good to shout that from the top of your lungs? And, and don't we need to remember that today, perhaps more than any other day in our history? The Lord reigns. And the message that I have for you today is a message about how do we let the world know that the Lord reigns. And shouting is a great way. But Peter is going to give us something remarkable that will actually be the most powerful testimony you could ever imagine. You know, I could stand up here this morning and I could say, oh, it's so terrible how public discourse has become so uncivil. It's terrible if you go on Facebook and, and it's very popular to just say, oh, it's, it's awful, everything that's going on. And it is. I mean, it's, it's very frustrating to see people so angry and hateful and rude and judgmental of each other. But I'm here to tell you this morning that this brings the greatest opportunity for the child of God to shine in darkness that we've ever had. And the neat thing about this is, it, in one way, it's incredibly hard because you have to give the control of your mouth and your attitude and your heart to the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, once you do that, the things you say to people will be so subtle, but they will shine like the noonday sun in the middle of the night. So we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 25. And by the way, whether you're here live or whether you're home doing uh, the live stream this morning, I want to encourage you to get some paper or have your phone ready to take notes because I'm going to share with you several scriptures that show you how powerful and how important the priority that Peter shares that I'm going to share with you today. This is from the Word of God. This is not my views or opinions. You can take my views and 245 and buy a grande drip at Starbucks, you know? That's how much my personal opinions are worth. But the Word of God is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to cut down deep to where we live. And I love that it's able to divide the thoughts 
and intentions of the heart. So as we look at God's word today, I want you to understand these are not God's suggestions for how he wishes we would live. This is a revelation of God's best for your life and for my life. So in chapter 17, or chapter 2, verse 17, and we're actually going to start with a kind of a hinge verse that Matt talked about last week, closing up the last section. I'm going to talk about this week, opening up the next section, because it shows us how important this particular attitude is. Before we get to that, I just want to share with you Romans chapter 12 too. You know, in Romans 1 through 11, Paul gives this amazing revelation of the mercies of God. He tells us that we were sinners, there was none righteous, that Jesus justified us, that God has separated us uh, from this world, and now nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so as a basis of that, Paul says, because of God's mercies towards you, I urge you to give him everything, your life, your body, your present, your future, everything. So that's kind of the fundamental response to the mercies of God, which is to present to God everything you have and everything you are. But now in verse two, he says something very interesting. He says, stop being conformed to this world. And I love how J.B. Phillips, a man about in the 60s who translated the New Testament, he translated this verse, stop letting the world squeeze you into its mold. So you guys, the current of this world is flowing this way. And Paul is saying, you guys, I want you going this way. I do not want you to allow the spirit of this world, the attitudes of this world, the lifestyle of this world, the priorities of this world. I don't want you to let those things squeeze you to become like them. And then he goes on and he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may demonstrate that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. So what I'm talking about today is fully and in a 180-degree sense, moving against the spirit of this world in your attitude towards other people and in your speech towards other people. Whether you're posting in Facebook or on Twitter or whether you're speaking to someone face-to-face or whether you're talking to someone about someone else, God said, I want your attitudes and I want your language to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So here's here we are. We're now in verse 17 of chapter 2. This is so interesting. This is one of these flyby verses because it's very abrupt. He gives four commands. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Now, as you read that, you might look at that as just four commands all kind of together but it's actually one command, and the one command is honor all people. We know this grammatically because this command is in the aorist tense. And it's almost, if you could picture Paul or Peter teaching, it's almost as if he's pounding the table. He's saying, honor all people. And then the other commands are in the present tense, 
which kind of gives him an gives us an idea. He's going to tell us how we honor all people in different groups around us. Okay, are you with me? Let's talk about this honor all people. The word honor means to give honor or value. It's interesting because it's also the word used to appraise things. Uh, Connie and I were watching uh, some moronic show last night uh, about people buying from a flea market and then they turn around and sell it. Around. Yeah, you guys have seen that? Okay. Really intelligent show designed to build up our intelligence and, and wisdom. But it's interesting how you try to come to, to value something. And what Peter is teaching us is he's trying to help us understand we need to give people the value that God gives them. We need to give people the value that they deserve as being created in the image of God. And I want to give you some implications of this. First, James chapter 411. If you value people, if you honor people, it means you are not going to judge people. Here's what James says in verse 411, chapter 411. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges of the judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And so what what uh, James is saying here is if I judge you, I'm actually setting myself apart from the law and saying, hey, what God says doesn't really apply to me. It also means, and this is the tough one, and by the way, if you're married, this is actually a marriage transformer. It means that you don't allow another person's ungodliness to you give you permission to respond in ungodliness towards them. This is from 1 Peter 3, 8, 9. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious. In other words, be, learn to get along with each other. Sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Do you hear that? Not returning evil for evil. So if somebody comes at me and says, oh, you are this and that because of who you're voting for. That does not give me the right to return to them and say, well, you, and to come back with that same spirit. Peter says, don't return evil for evil. If Connie's mad at me unfairly and she says things that are hurtful, that does not give me the right to return evil to her or insult to her. He actually says, instead, we learn to give a blessing. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Listen to what God is saying. God is saying, I have called you so that I can pour out my blessing on you. You know how you get into the place where you can receive that blessing? By being a giver of blessing, especially when people come against you. So let me give you three ideas on honoring people. Number one, this is a great one for parents to children by giving them the benefit of the doubt. Giving people the benefit of the doubt. It's so funny how so often when we, when we get into relationships with people, our first knee-jerk response is not to believe them. 
Well, what does that motivate people to do? If they're not going to believe me anyway, I might as well lie. So giving people the benefit of the doubt, that's from 1 Corinthians 13. It says that love believes all things. By listening, Secondly, by listening to what they say, even when you disagree or it is hurtful. James 1, 19 and 20. By speaking in a way, thirdly, that builds other people up. The Bible calls this speaking the truth in love. The Bible calls this speaking to give grace to those who hear. You guys, I want you to think for a minute. Just think about Facebook. Think about all of the social media. Think about the conversations that people have had around this election time. How dramatically different would it be if somebody spoke and wrote and acted in a way that brings honor to all people, even the ones who have taken a view, whether politically or theologically or personally, that is despicable to you, you choose to honor them. I will tell you, you would shine like the light. This, now, he's going to give us three commands under this. The next command, he says, love the brotherhood. And there's something very interesting. There is a priority in the New Testament for us to have a greater love and care for our brothers and sisters in Christ than we do for the rest of the world. You say, where do you get that? Galatians 6.10. Paul says, do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's interesting, late in the first century, there was a, a Roman government, governor who was reporting to the Caesar who had sent him to kind of spy on Christians. And what he came back and he reported to the Caesar is he said, the only thing I can say about these crazy Christians is they love one another. They were committed to each other. They would go to bat for each other. They would lose their own worldly uh, possessions in order to help another person out. The Christians loved each other, and this provided the magnet that caused the explosion of the church in the first century. The church went from 200 followers to, by the end of the first century, over 30 million followers of Jesus Christ. No internet, no mass media, no nothing, just people telling other people about Jesus and the magnet of a church that actually loved each other. So love is the priority. Number three, uh, the third command and the second under these three commands is to fear God. Interesting command, isn't it? Fear God. I want to help you understand something that is going to seem to undermine this, but then I'm going to explain it. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a huge sea change in our relationship with God. In the Old Testament, the number one description of a person's relationship with God was to fear God. In fact, over a hundred, let me look at here just to make sure I got it. Yeah, over 143 times the relationship with God is described in terms of fear. Only 37 times in the Old Testament is the relationship with God 
described as love. So all through the Old Testament, there was this sense of fear the Lord, and Deuteronomy explains it quite well. Deuteronomy says, if you obey me, you will be blessed. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. That was the the covenant that God made with Israel. It was a conditional covenant. Your blessings from God were dependent on your obedience to God. And so fear of the Lord in the Old Testament actually meant fear the consequences of disobeying him. But now when Jesus comes, everything changes. In fact, Romans 8, 14, and 15 says that all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba. That's the Hebrew word, Daddy, Father. Then John in 1 John 4.18 says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So overwhelmingly in the New Testament, the whole focus of our relationship with God shifts from fearing the Lord to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And what blew me away is when love comes in the New Testament in terms of our relationship with God, the overwhelming focus of that is not our love for God, but God's love for us. So all through the New Testament, God is trying to tell us, hey, I want you to know how much I love you. It's not God saying over and over again, love me, love me, love me, love me, love me. It's God saying, I love you. And so our relationship with God is now a relationship. And I'll be honest with you, the last perhaps 20 years of my life, the main growth in my relationship with God has not been in my learning to love him more, but my learning how much he loves me. And then what happens in my heart is just a response to that love. How can I not love a God who loves me like he does? All right, so now Peter says, fear God. What does he mean? He means something entirely different from the Old Testament concept of fear. I want to give you an example. John the Apostle, who wrote, There is no fear in love. Guess what he did when he was ushered into heaven before the throne of Jesus Christ? Anybody remember? It says he fell down like a dead man before him. And it was not, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. It was, wow, I never knew that this is who you really are. For the first time in his life, he saw Jesus totally unvarnished, totally without any covering on, but with the immense, crazy glory of God. And he was just totally blown away. So I want to give my translation of fear God, and that is be blown away by God. 
And I want to read to you from the Old Testament. First, or it's from Psalms 100, verses 3 through 5. Because there are five things David teaches us about God that if we can understand this, this will help us understand what it means to fear God in the New Testament context. Number one, know that the Lord, he is God. First thing you need to know if you're going to fear the Lord is he's God and you're not. He's smart, you're not, okay? He's wise, you're not. He knows the end from the beginning and you don't. Okay, he's God, you're not. That's kind of a great principle for life. When it comes to saying, should I obey God? That's like a redundant question. If he's God, of course you obey him. And so David says, first of all, know that the Lord, he is God. Secondly, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. A couple of implications of that. There is no such thing as a self-made person. I'm here because of my hard work. I'm here because of my gifts and talents and ability. No, I am here because of the blessing and grace of God. I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. All right, the third thing. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, I want you to understand what David is implying by calling us sheep and the sheep of Jesus or God's pasture. He says that everything we need is going to come from God. Everything we need is going to come from God. And the conclusion, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and ever and his faithfulness to all generations. People of God, when, when Peter says, fear God, he's not saying tremble before God. He's not saying watch your step because God's that cosmic killjoy in heaven who's out to get you. He's saying know who God is and live accordingly. So Peter said, honor everybody. And under that honor everybody, when it comes to the brotherhood, that means we love them. When it comes to God, it means we respect him and treat him as God. When it comes to the king, he says, honor the king. Guess who was the king in, uh, in Peter's day? It was Nero, that great uh, bastion of wisdom and justice and love. And the guy who decided to pin the burning of Rome on Christians. Peter's saying, we honor him. You know, in the last several years, we've had different presidents. We've had Obama for eight years. Before that, we had Bush. We had, now we've had Trump for four years. And it seems like whoever's president, about half of the country can say, yeah, honor the king, honor the president. But for us as Christians, it doesn't matter what happens in the next couple of weeks. Whoever the president is, we honor him. Whoever the governor of California is, we honor him. Whoever 
the legislature and Senate is, we honor them. Whoever is the leadership of Ventura County in this city, we honor them. That means we treat them with the respect whether we agree or disagree with them. And you guys, can you see how cross-current of the culture of our world this is? Peter's saying that honor and respect has to be the fundamental nature, the fundamental operating principle of our lives when it comes to how we deal with other people. Now he's going to apply this in the employment setting. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters. We're in uh, verse 16, uh, 18 now. With all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. In the first century, Rome had about 60 million slaves. Slaves were the economic engine that drove Rome to become the economic and military powerhouse that it was. Slaves in Rome were not viewed as people. They were viewed as possessions. They had no rights. A master could uh, kill a slave, and they did quite often uh, for messing up a dinner. And there was no consequence, no legal consequences to him whatsoever. When Jesus came into this world, he transformed that whole relationship. He didn't transform it by ending the institution of slavery. That did end probably three, four hundred years later. And in America, it took a few more hundred years. But he ended it, he transformed it by transforming the people in that relationship. So Peter writes to slaves who had no rights. And he says, I want you to submit to your masters with all respect. And I don't want you to limit that submission just to those who are good and reasonable, but to those who are harsh and unreasonable. Submitting is not a very popular term nowadays, is it? But this is how you treat respect. This is how you demonstrate respect to people above you. Now, I want to apply it today because you are not slaves of your employer, right? If you're working for somebody and, and he's an unreasonable man or woman and you don't want to work there anymore, you have full freedom under God to quit that job. You can quit that job and you can go look for another uh, place of employment and you can get under somebody else. But here's what Peter is saying to you. As long as you are working in a business or students, as long as you're in a class of a teacher, God calls you to treat that teacher with respect, that employer with respect, and submit to them with that spirit of respect. And it doesn't matter if they treat you fairly or it doesn't matter if they treat you horribly, you still submit. Why does Peter say that? This is remarkable. In verses 19 and 20, it says this, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows 
when suffering unjustly. I want you to see something powerful. God is expecting in the workplace, students in school, that you are going to suffer unjustly because you're a child of God. And that very act of suffering finds favor with God. When you are willing to suffer unjustly because of your faith, that puts you in a place of blessing and favor with God, even while the suffering's going on. Now, this is interesting. He goes on to say, for what credit is there if you sin and then are harshly treated and you endure it with patience? Peter says there's no glory in suffering because you've sinned. There's no glory in being fired because you were lazy. There's no glory in being fired because you refused to do what your employer told you to do. But there is glory if you suffer at your employment and you have done everything asked of you with respect and excellence and you were suffering because you were a child of God and you're standing for your faith. That is something that brings great glory to Jesus Christ. I want to read on verse 21. He says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. You know, it's interesting that a lot of us have little in his steps poems and I want to follow in his steps. This is specifically talking about following in the steps of Jesus in relationship to suffering. You guys, this is so radically different from the world. When we get mistreated, we want to shout and holler and complain. God says, I want you to suffer for my name's sake. He goes on to say, you're following in Jesus' steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So what do you do when you're suffering? You don't retaliate. You don't utter threats. You entrust yourself to the God who sees everything and knows everything. And you endure that suffering with the dignity of knowing that you're a child of God. I love what it says in verse 25, and with this we'll close. He says, for you were continually straying like sheep. Peter's trying to help bring us some perspective here. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to have to give up all of this good stuff. I don't want to have to go through a hard times. Peter says, wait, let's just look at the context of your life. There was a time in your life when you were straying like sheep. You were always wandering around away from God. How did that work out for you is basically the unasked question. He says, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Guys, here's the principle. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to protect yourself. You don't have to stand up for yourself. Because God 
is the shepherd, the protector, and the guardian of your soul. He's the one who will stand up for you. He's the one who is the righteous judge. You know, one of the most amazing testimonies to me in the early church is there are many times when the master and the slave stood side by side as they went to their execution as Christians. God broke down the wall so completely that now they were arm in arm. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. They were no longer master and slave. And they gladly walked to give their lives for Jesus Christ. I had a friend in Nepal who was the uh, leader, one of the, one of the leaders of the Communist Party in Nepal. He came to a church one Sunday and he saw people obviously of different caste. You know, India and Nepal are divided up into a caste system. And he said there was no evidence of that in the church. All the people of the different castes were sitting together. And before he even heard the gospel, he said, I'm in. This is where I belong. And he gave his heart and his life to Jesus Christ before he even knew the message of the gospel. That's what happens when Christ controls the culture that obliterates the culture in which we live. Now, it doesn't for everybody out there, but it does for us here. So bottom line, the message today is incredibly simple. Let the Spirit of God control your heart and your attitude and your mouth so that no matter how people speak, excuse me, no matter how people speak with you, you respond with wisdom and gentleness and kindness and most of all, with respect. We're going to take a few minutes now and we're going to worship the Lord. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Uh, while we're doing that, we have several ways that we worship the Lord. Over here, we have a, a place where you can give. There's a can uh, where you can put your offering or you can give online. Uh, either way is great. It is a way of supporting the ongoing ministry of this church. Uh, we will be taking communion in just a moment. Uh, and also, do we have... Uh, prayer team today, Ryan? Yeah, okay. Oh, right over there. Great. So we have a prayer team. If you have a need for prayer, for physical healing, for spiritual healing, for a difficulty that you're facing, these guys would treasure the opportunity to lift you up before the throne of grace. So Father, as we move back into a time of worship, I pray that you would be honored in everything that we do and say. I pray that you'd make us a respectful people that people might disagree with us, they might even hate us, but they would be stunned by how we treat them in response. In Jesus' name, amen.